A quick note I'd like to make about the episode. You may have noticed that for the first half or so, Randy's voice is pretty hard to hear. I apologize for that. Um, we were having a recording issue with one of the microphones. We've fixed it for the second half of the episode. Sorry, so, everybody. <laughs> so, yeah, please uh, please be encouraged to go. I'm going to try and fix it as much as I can in post-editing, but do uh, do not be too afraid. You can skip to halfway if you're just tired of hearing Clayton and want to hear more Randy. <laughs> Welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, our weekly podcast where we discuss the upcoming week's readings from our chronological reading plan, chew on some of the most interesting bits, and answer any questions that we've been sent. Now, I have received a question from last week's reading, but I told the asker that we would wrap it into our discussion this week. Also, we have with us our first ever very special guest, the great, the amazing, the wonderful Randy Keller. Randy is one of our deacons here at Calvary Community Church, and he's filling in for Pastor Ben, who's gone all week. Say hello, Randy. Hello, Randy. <laughs> How you doing tonight? I'm doing good. How are you, Clayton? I'm good. I'm excited for this. Are you ready for your breakout podcast performance? We'll see how it goes. You're going to be famous after this. This is listened to by tens of people. Tens of people. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good times. So should we tell the people about why Ben isn't here? Sure. So so Ben has been excited for a long time. Ben is, Pastor Ben has needed a vacation. Um, and a vacation has been on the books for a while. And it's on the calendar as Ben's grand old snake hunting trip. Because there are these boa constrictors that have been released into the ecosystem in Florida, and they've just kind of been messing everything up. And so there's these people that go down, and they they help catch them. So, like, it means that, you know, you'll be going up on, driving up on a Jeep, see a boa constrictor out sunning itself, sneak up behind it with a bag, throw the bag over it, and haul it back to the Jeep where it gets taken and disposed of later on. And I thought that was amazing and sounded like a blast would you would you go boa hunting no no it sounds horrific to it, me. really why because yeah. i'm not a snake fan uh, well no nobody's a snake fan but catching snakes mm. nothing in you like cries out for the adventure not, no no <laughs> i i would rather be as far away from a snake as i can be so i i've been saying that i think it's been trying to be like jesus because in genesis three fifteen we are promised that the, the son of the woman who ends up being Jesus is going to crush the snake with his heel. And Ben, living up to that calling and, and imitating Jesus, is going out snake hunting. Except Ben has COVID. And he came down on, on Monday, the Monday they were supposed to leave. And so he is sadly missing the snake hunting trip. And I'm very sad for him about that. That is too bad. He's been looking forward to it. He has. And what I asked his dad and brother, who were both going on the trip, what I said I absolutely needed was I needed a video of Pastor Ben sneaking up on a boa constrictor with a bag, like just picturing him like creeping up behind it, you know, holding a bag. I wanted that so bad. I think that would have been amazing and hilarious. And now Ben got COVID, which was very inconsiderate because it means I'll never get to see that video. I'll bet he tries again. Yeah, that would be good. I will if if Dan and Caleb have a good time. I imagine they might go again, and maybe Ben will get to go this next time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll see if one of them gets eaten. They'll probably not do another one. Probably not. All right. I doubt anyone will get eaten, but but you never know. Um, we'll keep you updated. So, normally we would do an introduction here. Our readings 
for this upcoming week are all out of the book of Psalms again. Between last week and this week, we are mostly covering the book of Psalms. Some have been left out, either we've done them beforehand because they've gone with specific events that we've read about, or they're coming up later for a variety of reasons. But for the most part, last week and this week's readings have been about the book of Psalms. And we did an introduction last week. So instead of doing another one, I just want to give a very brief intro, and then we're going to dive right in. The book of Psalms is the prayer book and song book of the Bible. We mentioned last week that most of these were probably originally set to music, and I encouraged you, and I want to repeat, that when you read them, if you can, you should read them aloud. They're meant to be read that way. Or if you're bold, sing them. They're meant to be sung. Now, there's one thing I don't think we mentioned last week that I want to point out about this incredible body of song poems in the Bible. It's intended to be formational. In other words, we're meant to pray them as our prayers. If we will do so, I'm confident that we will begin to see ourselves being changed to be more like Jesus. And that happens in a lot of ways. But the one that I want to talk about here is this. The Psalms cover the wide range of human experience. If you make a habit of praying them, even the ones about things you've never experienced, if you make a habit of joining the prayers, for example, of a suffering people, then your heart has some practice going to the Lord with those feelings when they spring up in you because you do experience suffering. In other words, it's like practice for when you experience something in your own life. And the same is true with joy and frustration and anxiety. The Psalms can shape us in such a way that we, we are practiced with going to the Lord with all the experiences of a human life, so that when we do encounter them, our heart response is to go to him. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I agree. I guess, first of all, um, the, it, as you read through them, it's really hard to not pray them. I, I think it, it just the words are in such a way, I mean, it, it is obviously a prayer, and mm-hmm. you, you can relate to your own life, and you can um, process it. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I find that a lot, and I find even more so when I read them out loud. Um, I don't know how to read them out loud. Well, we're going to do that a little bit in a, in a bit, but it's still, it's very prayerful. I mean, it's they're written. They're written prayers. You pray them. It makes sense. Yeah. Have you ever uh, used the Psalms as a major part of your devotional life? I haven't specifically. I mean, a little bit here and there um, to add it in, but not not yeah. a specific um, dedication to it, I guess. That, that is okay. We Protestants usually don't, um, and I think that is something that we miss. Um, I think that some people think it feels very Catholic to pray aloud the Psalms, and they're right. It is a Catholic practice. It's an Orthodox practice, too, but it is those things because it it's— a very sensible spiritual practice. It's also a very Jewish thing to do. Um, and it would be good for us to join, I think. It's a beautiful practice. I think that it's just, it, I, I think it does feel Catholic to us, but um, I, sometimes we tend to throw out too much when we when we make a change. And yeah. <laughs> we, we don't realize that some things are important. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, we don't like repeating things or reading things already written. We kind of have this idea that everything needs to be spontaneous. Right. I was talking with someone today about the the need for for devotions to feel spontaneous. And so this person resisted a 
um, div- like a set disciplined reading plan, not like our reading plan, but just a devotional practice because they didn't want to go into the word if they didn't have like a spontaneous desire to do so. And I think that that kind of emotionalism, that desire for it feeling right is a Protestant thing. And there's some good in that. The, the, I think it's really good for us to want to want to go into the Bible. But I think that the better thing is to go in whether you feel that or not. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. I mean, a lot of times when you're reading it, it you start feeling it, right? I mean, it, Absolutely. As you re- read Psalms and so on, you, you can relate and you, you start to feel it. Mm-hmm. The place that everyone has experienced this is going to the gym. Uh, if you have a gym membership, you spend a lot of time dreading going into the gym. But then you do go into the gym and you're there for a few minutes and you start to enjoy being there. Yeah, I've never experienced that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my thing. That's not your it, thing? It needs to be, but it's not. <laughs> we all need to be going to the gym. Um, but the Psalms are like the gym for your soul. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, what I want to do here is I want to dive right into a couple of things. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a few words that are pretty common in the Psalms. That is, as you're reading through them, you're going to be experiencing them, and so, or you're going to be coming across them. And you might be wondering what these mean or how you're supposed to interpret them. Um, and the, uh, the two I want to talk about are the soul and the heart, or two of the ones I want to talk about are the soul and the heart. You find these all through the Psalms, right? I mean, every Psalm, it feels like, references one or the other. My inmost being, my soul, my heart. The thing that's interesting about reading the Old Testament is that the, the way we use these words um, is, is kind of coded into the New Testament a little better. But in the Old Testament, they're, they're just a little different. So the soul, the Hebrew word is nefesh, which is a fun word, and it literally means breath. And so can you guess what the first example of nefesh is in the Bible? To Adam. Yeah. So he breathes life into Adam. He, he, he makes this, this pile of clay and then he breathes life into it. And one of the things that's important as you, as you read through the Old Testament or just helps me is we tend to think of us as having a soul. But in, in, in the Old Testament, that pile of clay, once life was breathed into it, it became a soul. The soul is, is like the whole being, the parts you can see, and the parts that you can't. And the primary the primary part of that is what God gave, the breath. And we can they knew that that's what happened because you could see it escaping people, right? Like we breathe it in and we breathe it out. That's that that life breath that God has given us. And they even talked about the wind this way. You know, it was the life breath of God. We see J- Jesus even talking about that in John 3 in his famous talk with Nicodemus. You know, he talks about the the breath, and he compares it to the spirit blowing, which is how they understood this, this idea of nefesh. And so when, you, when you're reading and the psalmist talks about my, my soul, he's talking about this, I mean, he's talking about his whole being. He's talking about the life given to him by God. It's the internal part of him. Uh, it's his, his appetite, his desires, his emotions. It's all of these things wrapped up together. The heart in the Old Testament is a little bit different. Now, they overlap. We kind of like it when things are completely different, mm-hmm. right? We like Venn diagrams that don't touch because we want categories, right? right? And 
That the problem is that it just doesn't work that way. We even combine these words today in English when someone wants something with all their heart and soul. You know, they we don't mean two entirely separate things there. They're two ways of saying the same thing. And the Old Testament does that a few times. It uses those words next to each other to just kind of do the same thing we do in English. But the heart is more of the emotion or the thought or the will. It's what we tend to think of as a person's mind today, they thought of as the heart. And I think that that kind of helps as I'm reading it because it does, it, feelings are part of it, but it doesn't just mean feelings. So like Psalm 108 starts, my heart, oh God, is steadfast. Our feelings are not always steadfast. You know, we can't read it like we, we do, we would read someone talking about their heart today. This is a, a bigger idea. It's the whole internal person. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. And that's why you can say that your heart is steadfast because our emotions are not. You tend to weave them, move all over. Yep. You get a weird meal and all of a sudden your emotions are off. You skip dinner and all of a sudden they're in a different direction entirely. And that is, that is not something that's steadfast. Um, but our, our mind can be set on something, can be committed to something. And that's how it can be steadfast. They talked about a lot of other things as part of the, the inner person as well. We're not going to get into them today, but one of the things they like to talk about was the kidneys. Uh, I, they they kind of thought the kidneys were um, special organs and then also the loins, of course. You're, you know, Job is told to gird his loins, which is, you know, pick up your intestines, boy, I got something to say to you. And so they just had very descriptive language for the internal person. Yes, they did. <laughs> I, I just try to imagine before modern science, like, a person died and they looked inside and they were like, what do all these things do? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but the, they, they equated emotions, I think, with, with the heart in part because like we feel emotions. We tend to feel them in the heart. But when you're like scared, where do you tend to feel that? In your stomach. In your stomach. So when they say gird up your loins, it was like, you know, and, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Have you ever girded up your loins or had anyone say that to you? I've heard it, but no, I don't think I've ever had anybody tell me to gird up my loins. (laughs) The NIV changes it. Brace yourself like a man is what they say. And we kind of get that. But man, gird up your loins is just better, I think. that, That says something to me. Um, there's one more word in the Psalms that I want to, I want to talk about because it can be a little controversial. I actually had an email that included this recently, a person that was upset about things and and said, what's next? Are you going to talk about meditation? As though meditation is this bad spiritual thing. And I think I know where they were coming from. Randy, when you think about meditating, like what's the picture that immediately springs to mind? Oh, the um, Eastern religion of, Sitting with your legs crossed and your thumbs and, in a circle. And uh-huh, and, your fingers in a circle. And, yeah, totally emptying yourself out. Absolutely. Not, not, I mean, I'm not trying to go where you were going. Go for it. <laughs> Take it. I, I think their meditation, they're talking about emptying yourself out, but filling yourself back up with God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's looking for that, that word from God and mm-hmm. concentrating on him, not, um, not just 
making yourself empty to allow whatever to come into you. Absolutely. So it's interesting how much this is settled into our culture. Lisa told me that there were some preschoolers that were, um, they were just playing and they're, you know, they sat down on the mat and they were told to sit still. And one of them, he crossed his legs and he, he, he's three years old and he puts his fingers in the circle you know, and they, they got some, one of the teachers got it in a picture because they were just taking a picture of the kids playing and a parent commented on it because it looked like the teachers were uh, taking a picture because they were teaching him, the, you know, the whole fingers and circles, legs crossed thing. That went over well. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, this is a thing that, that three-year-olds already know. Like that's the picture in our culture, emptying oneself. But you're exactly right. The, the Hebrew word for this, I love it. It's Hagah. And it, it literally means growl, which does not make us think of meditation very often. But here's where the picture comes from, I think. I don't know if it came from exactly here, but here's how it connects for me. When you think of something that growls, what comes to mind? A bear or dog. A bear or dog. I'm thinking of a dog. So I used to have a dog named Gunner. He was a big dog. He was my dad's dog, and I inherited him when my dad passed. Gunner was a big boy. He was about 90 pounds. And he, when he was, when we got him, he barely had any teeth. So like chewing on bones was a thing of the past because we didn't want to lose the few teeth he had. But when he was younger, dad would give him bones and not real bones, you know, the bones you buy at a store. And Gunner had this thing that he would do where he got a bone. And the first thing he'd do is he'd go and he'd like show it to everybody. Like he'd want everybody to see it. You know, he was excited about it. His tail would be wagging. I can picture him doing it now. But then, what do you think he would do? He'd growl at you just because he wanted you to grab it, probably. Oh, that's 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 a really good point. That's not where I was going, oh. but that's the kind of thing that dogs do. But he'd go off and he'd find a corner. Gunner would want to go somewhere out of sight, you know, and 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 then he would set it down and he would lick it and he would nibble on it and you'd hear these little sounds coming from him pure delight and joy as he's chewing on a bone and the idea of meditating in the old testament the reason they use the word growl is exactly that these these little guttural sounds of intense um, enjoyment delight focus that we are called to have on scripture or on the truth of, of God. And so as Christians, when we meditate in the Psalms, it's almost always on, on God's word that it's being meditated. It's this idea of I'm, 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 I'm excited about it. It's mine. I'm taking it. And I am just, I'm just devouring it with delight. And meditating on a Psalm or a Bible verse, you know, you're, you're taking that into you in a way that's important. You're filling yourself up rather than emptying yourself out. You hit the nail on the head right at the beginning. It's kind of a neat picture of meditation, isn't it? It is. It, is. It's, it flips it upside down. <laughs> mm -hmm. In response to that, uh, learning that a number of years ago, I developed a practice. I don't do it any longer. You could say I've done it too much, where I would always eat chocolate while I was reading the Bible because I wanted to associate, you know, the Bible can be looked at as like a cornflakes thing. Some people think of the Bible as this like boring, healthy thing you have to do, but it's not that. It's it's more like chocolate than cornflakes. I mean, it's good for you, but it's it's rich and it's deep and it's exciting. And that was that was an honest to goodness devotional practice. And then, well, I needed to stop eating so much chocolate, but I do stand by it. So any of you chocolate lovers out there, 
I know of at least one listening to the podcast. You have my permission to eat chocolate when you read the Bible. I'm thinking more like a slice of pizza. Ooh. Are you not a chocolate guy? Are you more of a pizza guy? Uh, I like the sweet, savory stuff. Yep. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. I got you. That's fine. You can have the savory. I'll have the sweet. It's we'll perfect. We'll be in good shape. All right. Well, I want to I dive in a little bit more with one of the conversations we had last week on the imprecatory psalms. And imprecatory is this idea of, of asking for vindication or judgment. And we talked about them a little last week. Um, there are several psalms that, are, that kind of fit this category. But the two that always stand out to me are, anyway, Psalm 109 and Psalm 137. We're not going to read Psalm 137 with the reading plan for a while, but Psalm 109 is in our readings for this week. And so I want to I wanna actually take a look at it for a little bit if I can. So Randy and I are going to turn to Psalm 109. So just a couple of things about this psalm. We know that it's written by David. We don't have a special occasion for it. But the, the imprecation, the, the call for judgment in here is pretty intense. I want to give you a little background about it, and then, then we're going to actually read it and just kind of talk about it a little bit. And so David starts out for five verses, and he talks about how these people who are um, wicked and deceitful are just out for him and the terrible things that they're doing. And then in verse 6, there should probably be quotation marks from verse 6 through verse 19. The idea being that David is giving an example of the kinds of things that these terrible, wicked, and deceitful people say. Now, that's the content of like the really harsh stuff. And so on one hand, it can be like we're saying, so, you know, we don't really have to deal with David saying these terrible things because, well, we're saying that that these other people said this to David. But then in verse 20, as soon as the, the quotation is over, David says, all these things they said to, for me, turn it on them. So he's still asking for all these harsh, judgmental, judgment-filled things to happen to, to his accusers, to his enemies. He's just saying, they asked for it first, and I want the same thing for them. So it's still, it's hard for us to, to sit with comfortably because... We know that scripture tells us to, to bless those who curse us, and yet David is not someone that appears to do that. Um, and I want to I look at like specifically what's being said. So verses 6 to 19. So Randy's going to read verses 6 to 19, which are this imprecation. <clears throat> Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may, be, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. 
May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. What, what kinds of things is he, is he saying here uh, that he's wishing for to happen to the, the wicked and deceitful people? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the thing that stuck out to me is that he's, he's asking for like every aspect of his life, that he, he doesn't want anything to go unchecked. <laughs> he wants it to be a curse to him fully. And not only that, but his children and his offspring, um, he wants his line to end after the second generation. That yeah. he just, he wants everything to be horrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, he wants, his, he wants them to die, right. um, the wicked people. And then after the second generation, wants their kids to all be dead too. I mean, this is, this is uncomfortable. This is not the kind of thing that a Christian should ever pray. That seems fair. Right. We should, we should doesn't never sound very Christian. No. no, it doesn't. Now, I think that some of this, we need to understand that David's situation and ours are different. We're on a different side of the cross. David was not looking at a, a belief like we have of all wrongs being righted in the same way that we do. You know, the, the belief about eternity for the Jews in the Old Testament and us in the New Testament are a little bit different, right? And so what we have hope for, you know, with God's divine judgment on, on wickedness and sin, we're not sure what David thought about that. And it's very possible that these prayers come because they believe that there is a God of justice. And if justice doesn't happen here in this life, then it will never happen at all. And so they're calling for justice to be done. And there's, there's a couple of pieces of this that are really difficult for us. Um, last, last week, we talked about what we can do with this language. And I think that's a good question for us to have. And we, we mentioned a little bit about you know, praying the imprecatory psalms against our spiritual enemies. You know, when, when we talk, they talk about enemies, we pray for spiritual enemies. I can pray against the offspring of Satan. That's not hard for me to do, and that, that feels right. Also, Pastor Ben mentioned praying alongside those who are suffering. So especially the, the suffering church, the persecuted church, praying alongside them is a major part of, a major thing that we can do with the imprecatory psalms to to try and understand what it's like for a person to suffer at another person's hands and then pray along with them for justice. I think that is a good, a good use. We can, we can really summarize what these psalms are doing. Psalms like 109, psalms like 137. They're, they're a cry for justice and vindication, for punishment for, to be given to those who have done wrong. One of the principles that's at work here, this word justice, in the Bible, justice means something different than we usually mean. So yeah. when, we say, when we say justice, what do we usually mean? Um, retribution, I guess, would be one aspect of it. We want, we want the person to pay for what they did. Yeah, the Bible, ref, the Bible idea for that is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? A punishment that fits the crime. Right. You broke my window, and so the idea of justice is something needs to be done to you in order to be equivalent to that. Now, of course, what the, the biblical version of justice is the window gets remade, right? So the wrong is undone is kind of the picture. But that's not something we can do. For example, whether you agree with it or not, the death penalty is a picture of this retri retri retributive justice, right? You've killed someone, so now we're going to kill you back. You know, that, that's the punishment. 
This seems to fit the crime. Again, I'm not endorsing it, just kind of giving it, that's the ultimate picture of, of our kind of justice. And our kind of justice is what David's calling out for. They didn't, they wouldn't have called it justice, but vindication, retribution, that's what, that's what he's crying out for here. Something that's important here is that hyperbole is a major part of the Psalms. In Psalm 137, David says, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. David does not mean that literally. He's communicating something that cannot be communicated with cautious, literal language. I mean, compare the outrage of Psalm 137 or the heartache and frustration of Psalm 109 with the words, I'm very angry and I hope that retribution happens. <laughs> right? That would be cautious, literal but these words are poetic and they draw us in and they help us to feel what David is feeling. And so David doesn't literally want children to be thrown against rocks. David does not literally want the grandchildren of his enemies to die. You know, that's not what's happening here. He's crying out for vindication. He's crying out for justice with words that are better words for that than cautious, literal ones. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we we should be uncomfortable with it, right? I mean, I think that's something to take is when we look at it, we should be uncomfortable with what he's asking for. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think we can relate um, to wanting that retribution. I mean, I, I've never had any of the horrible things happen to me that's happened to him. That's true. But, but even the little things that have happened poorly, I want, in my heart, I want them to be, I, I want the person to pay for what happened. And I understand that feeling. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Now, there, there's two points that I want to add to what we said last week and what we've said so far today. Speaking of the harsh language, now this is a quotation by Derek Kidner, who's one of my favorite Old Testament commentators. And while talking about the language, he says this, This brings us close to the heart of the matter, which is that the Psalms have, among other roles in Scripture, one which is peculiarly, pe peculiarly their own to touch and kindle us rather than simply to address us. The passages on which we may be tempted to sit in judgment have the shocking immediacy of a scream to startle us into feeling something of the desperation which produced them. This is revelation in a mode more indirect but more intimate than most other forms. Without it, we should have less embarrassment but still less concept of the dark places of the earth which are full of the habitations of cruelty, a cruelty which can bring faithful men to their breaking point. And what he's saying there is that these, these words serve a purpose to help draw us in and get a glimpse of what it's like to experience suffering. They show us what suffering is like based on what the people who are experiencing it are crying out for. And I think that's, I think that the author, Kidner, is very insightful there. You know, if you're crying out for, well, I'm a substitute bus driver, and the, when a child is accidentally bumped, often a child of a certain age is convinced that it's on purpose, and their heart cries out for justice. And what they want to happen is the teacher to say something harsh to that, that kid, or to be able to bump them back, right? Mm -hmm. Their heart cries out for justice, and the justice that it cries out for is a re-bumping. Right. 
the the thing that you're asking for, crying out for, tells us something about what's been done to you. And so what David is crying out for tells us that these are people who are trying to kill him, to wipe out his line, to get rid of David's history, story, family, all of it. And while we don't have exactly the details going on in David's life that make this psalm, we can we can get into that heart space a little bit. And so they're valuable in that way. Right. Yeah. Praying them like we pray other psalms is still uncomfortable. But but I, I think it's I think it's still beneficial to enter into the language of suffering to prepare us for the day that we might actually experience it and cry out for justice. Although for us, justice is of course not Lord, punish them here. We cry out for justice, asking for the Lord to redeem or repair, and then also trusting that he'll take care of it afterwards. Uh, yeah. All right. I want to uh, I want to talk a little. Do you have any other thoughts about the imprecatory psalms or that harsh language? No, I don't think so. I, I, it's, it's, it's hard stuff. It is hard stuff. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the songs of ascent. Do you, have you ever heard of the songs of ascent before? I don't know specifically, no. Okay. Let me ask you this. You're in, you're a, a Hebrew in the Old Testament. We're doing something live. I didn't plan for this. We're just going to give it a shot. Um, you're, a, you're, a, you're a Hebrew in the Old Testament. You're a Jewish person. And your Bible tells you that three times a year, you're supposed to go to the temple. Wherever you're at, you're supposed to go to the temple. It's for the, the Passover, for the Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of Tabernacles? Tabernacles. It's in Deuteronomy 16 somewhere, but those there's three times you're supposed to go to the temple and you're on your way. I mean, what do you think would be on your mind as you're going to Jerusalem to the temple where you believe like your God is there? What do you think that would be like? I think be some excitement to it. Um, you'd be pretty excited. You'd probably be a little scared. Yeah. Um, kind of a mixture of um, apprehension and joy at the same time. I think so too. Hope. Hope. Right? Yeah. I mean, you're going. To, you're going into God's presence. Your God dwelling in a building. You're going to go see Him. Okay. So let's say that it wasn't just you going, but like, let's say it was today. We found out that Jesus was back. Forget all the theological problems with that. Let's just, <laughs> you know, He's in. I don't know. Let's say Kentucky because he likes fried chicken and. And you have a chance to go see him. And so you're on your way. Who else do you think is going to be going? Probably every other person on the planet. <laughs> yeah, all, all the Christians are going to go see him. Right. And let's imagine that you're walking, right? You're walking miles to go see him. What do you think that you'll be doing with the other Christians? What would happen? I feel like I would fall on my knees <laughs> as I saw him. Well, I you're mean, not there. You're traveling. Oh, traveling. Yeah. It's going to be a... Um, Congested mess will be. trying to get there. You think you'd sing? Yes, definitely. It'd be worship songs, right? Today yeah. it'd be, um, I can only imagine, I know that's the song that everybody would be singing, you know, because they're about to go see Jesus. Yep. And, and it'd be a song that would just excite everyone and fill them with hope. These psalms, they're Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. They're called Songs of Ascent. Because these are the songs that the Jewish people would sing when they were on their way to Jerusalem to visit the temple. When they were going to see God, they had a, a soundtrack, a CD of 15 songs that they would sing over and over. 
And the thing about these psalms is they're short. For the most part, I think they're all pretty short. They tend to be hopeful. Not all of them are hopeful, but most of them are, are pretty upbeat. And they tend to have a few recurring themes. Like each psalm kind of focuses on an idea that repeats. And then there are ideas that kind of go between them. And a lot of a lot of focus on Zion, which is which makes sense. They're going to Jerusalem to see the temple, but these are uplifting, exciting psalms of worship, and these would be sung over and over and over again. And they'd say other things. They're not just singing the entire time, but but when when the excitement breaks out, when boredom starts to overtake, they would sing these psalms together in large groups of strangers whom they'd never met is they go to the temple together. And so there's actually a book I want to recommend. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson, who's a complicated author. Um, his, a lot of people like different works of his in different amounts. We don't need to talk about that. And it is okay if you have a problem with some of the things that he's written. But this book is excellent. It's on these Psalms of Ascent as a picture of discipleship. It's a discipleship in an instant society is what it's called. And it's it's thoroughly excellent. But these these little psalms that are kind of grouped together here uh, in Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are a good place to go to for if you're trying to figure out some psalms to make your own, you know, some regular parts of your prayer life. These are good ones. And they encapsulate kind of the excitement and the joy and the hope that comes with going before the Lord in worship. And they're not all in our readings for this week, but several of them are. And so I just kind of wanted to mention them to you. You're going to see that the Psalms are going to be labeled a song of ascents. And that's what's happening. These are the songs that would be sung by God's people on their way to worship him in the temple. That's just kind of neat. It is neat. Yeah, I always picture myself as among them when I read these. or And these are the ones when I'm alone. I wish I was bold enough to do it when I'm around other people. I'll often try to sing them. They, it's hard because we don't know the tune, you know. But but some of it some of it seems intuitive. But of course of course it's English that we're singing them in and not Hebrew. Right. So yeah, I'm not even sure if they might even rhyme. Or some of them might rhyme. Um, I've translated a few of them from the Hebrew, and I can't remember. It would make sense though. But they're they're easy songs. They're catchy tunes. Yeah. Yeah. Now I have a picture of you singing "Wheels on the Bus Go Round and Round" um, to the song to the psalm that you're reading. There you go. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> hmm. That's not really a worship-inspiring uh, uh, tune. No, that's funny. Well, Randy, do you have any other questions or thoughts about the psalms? I mean, just um, maybe real quick. There, you know, every once in a while you see on there "Sila." Um, yeah. And yeah, as as you read through that, I, I, I've tried to look up what that means and different sites say different things. Um, mm -hmm. What does it really mean? That's a great question. So there are a lot of books or a lot of terms at the beginning of Psalms that we don't know what they're supposed to be. But Selah, we're pretty confident, means rest. Like when you're reading music today, there's rest, right? And some of the Psalms, either at the beginning of the Psalm or throughout the psalm you'll see this this sila mm -hmm. and it means rest now that might mean for a breath that might mean for a moment to reflect you know today when you're listening to the radio there's not 
there's not long rests, but they might have been. We're not, I don't think we're really sure, but that's what it means. It means rest. And it's a, it's a neat word because it's, that idea is a good part of our, to be part of our prayer life. I'm trying to look for a sila. Psalm 88's got a couple of them in there. 88? Yeah. Let's see. That's interesting. They're not in my NIV on here at all. Oh, wow. It's after verse 7 and after verse 10. Yeah, they're just skipped. <laughs> yeah, there we go. The Hebrew has sila, a word of uncertain meaning here and at the end of verse 10, but it almost certainly means rest. Okay. Yeah. There's a bunch of there's a bunch of those words and I wonder if the NIV like 89 has a maskil. That's I was going to that was the other word I was going to ask you. We have no idea what maskil means. It probably relates to the type of song or the instrument that would be played with it. We just we just don't know. Right. Yeah, that was a good question. And we didn't talk about that. So thank you for that. Yeah. No. Any other questions or comments from the Psalms? I don't think so. I think you've given a great explanation. Well, thanks, Randy. Thank you for coming in and being a special guest. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Yeah, I hate the, the first part of this. You may not have been as audible. I'm going to go through and fix that as best as I can. But, um, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed having you. Thank you. It's good to be here. You want to give the outro? Sure. This is Randy. Um, you're here with Ben and Clayton. Eat the Bible. So thank S- you for joining. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.